Having grown up in New York, I remember being fascinated by cockroaches and rats. I was curious about the sheer quantity of these organisms and how they survived. It was amazing that they were capable of flourishing in seemingly impossible situations. It is interesting that these species are empowered by environmental situations created by man in urban and suburban models. We are their landscape. These symbolically marginalized species are considered ruthless and out of control. But this perception is really symptomatic of our inability to control nature. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Ultrarescue, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me briefly mention a few of the books I've recently read and recommend. The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court by Jeffrey Tubin. Written in 2007, Tubin provides the backstory of the historic overturning of Roe v. Wade and the decades-long crusade of conservative Republicans to control the Supreme Court. The obvious political agenda of Supreme Court justices with unchecked power is frightening. This is an interesting, informative, and chilling book. Thanks to my brother Lewis for giving me his well-annotated copy. The Midcoast by Adam White takes place in a small town in Maine. Fun read, a bit of a mystery novel, classic Maine. The author writes of the granite break walls between those who have been here for generations and those who have landed more recently within the past century or two. Amen. I also read my friend Mark Week's debut novel, Bottled Lightning. I felt like I was watching a Jason Bourne chase scene for the entire book. Constant action and suspense. I became attached to several of the characters and loved the overlap between the lives of the primary protagonist and the author. I'm reminded of the observation by P.D. James, all fiction is largely autobiographical and much autobiography is of course fiction. I really enjoyed both the book and my podcast discussion with Mark. The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood by Jane Levy. My dad and I used to sit in the center field bleachers behind the Mick, who was my boyhood idol during the 1960s. In 1989, I had the opportunity to meet Mick and listen to him talk for a couple of hours about Casey, Moose, Hank, Billy, Whitey, and the rest of the gang. I was blown away. I kept thinking about how happy my dad would have been for me. This great book brought back many memories of Mick and his teammates, the great Yankees of the dynasty era, and created lots of new memories, some not so great and some downright ugly. At Mickey's funeral, broadcaster Bob Costas described Mantle as a fragile hero to whom we had an emotional attachment so strong and lasting that it defied logic. And with his usual rhetorical flourish, Yankee manager Casey Stangle once said about Mantle, this kid ain't logical, he's too good, it's very confusing. Mickey Mantle was certainly confusing, but I loved this guy growing up and loved this biography. Finally, Melanie gave me Raising Rafi, 
The First Five Years, written by her friend, Keith Gesson. I don't recall reading any child-rearing books when my kids were little, and I hadn't intended to do so now for my sweet grandkids. While Keith's heavily researched and informative book, written from the perspective of a Soviet Jewish emigre living in Brooklyn, was instructive, it is more of a fun, inspirational memoir than an instruction manual. Keith confirmed for me the importance of many things, of nurturing curiosity, of giving your kids the freedom to figure things out on their own, and of the importance of being as close to possible to your kids' daycare. Both substantive and practical advice abound. I feel as if I got to know Keith by reading his book, and especially when he wrote that he consulted online and bought a number of books to get advice on raising his son, Rafi. But he refused to buy a book called The Happiest Baby on the Block, explaining, we did not want Rafi to be the happiest baby. We wanted him to be the most interesting baby. I'm sure he will be. And now for today's guest. Todd Spire is a licensed fly fishing guide and instructor, and is the owner of Asopus Creel, a company devoted to fly fishing in the Catskill Mountains, where he's lived since 2008. Todd's on the board of the local Trout Unlimited chapter, which helps to protect the Asopus Creek, which feeds into the Ashokan Reservoir, which provides New York City with about 40% of its drinking water. Todd is a scholar of our local river, the Asopus Creek. Todd has written that to him, fishing is church, the one thing that makes time stop and reminds him about what's important. I share those sentiments. I find that some of the great fly fishing authorities are also great writers. Three examples. Writer, publisher, and fly fishing legend Nick Lyons wrote in his memoir, Spring Creek, of the stillness, complexity, joy, fierce intensity, frustration, practicality, hilarity, fascination, and satisfaction that he finds in fly fishing. And then Ed Van Putt, a historian, author, and authority on Catskills Rivers, and who worked for the New York State DEC for many years protecting fishing waters, securing public access for fishing, and special regulation waters for fly fishers. Van Putt writes of the beauty of nature on a trout stream. Streams are vibrant, and many fly fishers seek more than fish. They look for solace in the natural world of the stream. They also enjoy the chatter of a kingfisher and the experience of seeing a bald eagle perched on a limb, or a doe or a fawn crossing the stream, and the fragrance of streamside wildflowers. Todd himself wrote similarly in his website's invitation to fish with him. To the souls who will commune with me on the river this coming year, we will share in a ceremony of the art of admiration, of being both small and mighty in the face of nature. We will share awe. We will wade in the same water that once graced the sky and is on a journey back to the sea, a universe from which it will be reborn as we all are in the face of water. Please join me for fly fishing in the Catskills. You will see or hear or learn or touch something amazing. Probably all of those things 
and likely a wild rainbow trout will make the list. I visited Todd at Esopus Creole recently and asked him if there was a book he would like to discuss on the podcast. He suggested a book by Leonard Wright called Neversink, One Angler's Intense Exploration of a Trout River. Todd gave me a copy and I read it, and I look forward to discussing the book with you, Todd, today. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thanks, Howard. Pleasure to be here. Very much looking forward to our conversation. Well, the conversation's taking place uh, at Peck Hollow, my son Dave's house, on the banks of a tributary leading right into the Esopus, so it's a good place to have this discussion. So, uh, Leonard Wright wrote more than 10 books about fly fishing, many published by Nick Lyons. So, Todd, why did you choose this book to discuss, and what are your thoughts about the book? When you asked me to come on the podcast, I was obviously very excited about it. We have a, a, a wonderful relationship, both personally and on the river. I, I, I believe it at this point, it's uh, fly fishing is an almost requisite activity for every member, both blood and in-law in your family. Yes, and absolutely. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, But the most recent book that I was, I think I was in the process of reading this when you asked uh, me to join, and I was not... I don't want to say I wasn't enjoying the book, but in, uh, in a unique way, I don't like the book that we're going to talk about today, but in a beautifully sort of way, Good. because I think that there's um, the reason that I chose this book is not to, uh, to, to say that it is bad so much as that I think it prompts a conversation that's timely um, and one that uh, a conversation that I think is relatable independently of your interests in in fly fishing, because uh, at the base of this book lies a, a, a component of the human condition uh, that we fall victim to in so many different ways, which is a desire to control nature. And uh, what this book is, is almost for uh, for Leonard sort of, a, I think it's a reflection on his lifelong experience living in the Catskills, not lifelong, but the whole breadth of his experience living here and the breadth of his experience experimenting with how to improve the trout fishing in the river uh, that flowed through his yard, which is the, um, the Never Sink uh, up in the headwaters. So, and, so describe where the Never Sink is when you refer to the headwaters. So the Never Sink is one of the major rivers of the Catskills. Ironically, it starts um, about a hundred feet from where the Esopus starts, but winds up in a completely different watershed. Um, so the Neversink is a tributary to the Delaware and the Esopus is a tributary to the Hudson, uh, but both start at the top of Slide Mountain. Uh, and as I like to joke, uh, I say as the worm crawls, because if you could just go straight through the peak of the mountain, it's about a hundred, 200 feet uh, between the start of both rivers. Uh, so most people know uh, Giant Ledge. It's one of the most popular hiking spots on the tallest mountain in the eastern Catskills. And, uh, but few know that two of the great rivers both start from there and flow in different directions. And it, they're very, very different uh, watersheds, especially geologically, which ultimately impacts the, the trout that are there. But back to your question, it's, this is one of the sort of sacred freestone rivers, at least up where the writer is writing from. Uh, both rivers are eventually impounded. Uh, and the, I forget the, just because I don't know the statistics on the Never Sink, but I can't for, I remember how long it is, but I believe it's about 15 miles from the headwaters to the reservoir, probably a little bit longer than that. 
Um, and this is the area where uh, the writer uh, is writing from. And it's a river that he wrote about throughout his career. This book was published at the end of his, near the end of his life. And he even acknowledged, I reread the foreword before we began recording today. And, you know, even he acknowledges that the way that the book might sound is not exactly uh, how it all came to be. It seems like his life is completely devoted to the work he was doing on the river. And he was, uh, you know, had a full-time job in the city. This was his weekend home for, for most of his life. And, he spent um, a lot of time working on this river. It, it certainly does seem so. Yeah. And I think even just the, the number of different ideas that he deployed in his, um, in his desire to, to better the river and specifically to make his experience trout fishing as good as it possibly could be. So, and at its, at its base, uh, he was trying different approaches to improve the fishing for his own personal enjoyment. Cause again, this is private water. So we're not talking about uh, a sort of a public initiative, like the way that we think of stocking, right? Like state stocks a river and then everybody gets to enjoy it. So this was, you know, one man's experiment, manhandling his privately owned river to see if he could make fishing better. And one of the things that I, like about disliking the book is that for all of the accolades that the book jacket might give the, what you know you're about to read and uh and the fact that you know one might think that this is the an accounting of the act of fly fishing it really is a chronology of his failures to control nature and uh he tries you know he starts with stocking he is not a catch and release fisherman which is a relatively new concept in the world of angling, you know, conservation and not angling for sustenance. Having grown up catching and releasing, it was startling to hear him taking fish. Now, it sounds like he reformed later in life, but I don't know to what extent. Right. And I'll take fish when I'm camping and I'm going to eat them on a, on a camp stove. But uh, it was it was startling yeah. to read that. Yeah. I think it's it's startling also coming from someone who has written extensively at this point when this book came out, some, you know, an author who had already written extensively about fly fishing and, and made a few waves uh, as well in the books that he had published previously. You know, it's, it's for what it's worth too. It's interesting that this book did not get published by Nick Lyons, you know, yes. Um, yeah, well, it's one I of the few you mentioned it before. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of interesting. And I know um, uh, there's history there on this podcast. So, but uh so, you know, he starts with stocking and realizes, oh, he's caught and eaten all the fish that live on his property, you know, almost immediately. Um, and so he restocks and talks about how the stocked fish aren't as pretty as the ones that, you know, were wild and and then goes through almost every imaginable scenario of, of trying to, to improve the fishing from um, building building walls, creating structure, putting rocks in, taking rocks out, um, adding chemicals to the water, which is the big, oh my goodness, although it's not actually as awful as it sounds um, because it was, you know, it's a, uh, I believe he uses lye. It's actually used still to this day in some rivers to just equalize pH and create a better environment for trout in a, in a, in a, in a way that doesn't hurt them. He begins chumming with, uh, including getting his, he gets his kids to continually throw uh, 
lungs, right? Lungs, yeah, right, sorry. The, the, yeah. So the, he, he refers to them as lights, and I yeah. had no idea what that was. So I, yeah, I, I had to look that up. And, and, and these are lungs from animals that he's using to chum the water. So you, you refer to all of this as um, trying to control nature, and that's exactly what comes out and um, is off-putting to the least. The book is fascinating in the detail about mayflies and nymphs and spinners and caddisflies in particular and stoneflies and ants and so on. But uh, reading about his stocking and his uh, curation of the stream to his liking is just so far into my experience. Yeah. I think it's important to point out, and I always take the, the time to do this, you know, keeping a fish. And I'm, I'm glad that you just openly say, oh, when I'm camping, I'll keep a fish. You know, we've gotten, I think we've gone too far into the world of this ethos that catch and release is, needs to be a hundred percent pure in that we've made it a moral, an act of morality and, and it really isn't. It's an act of personal choice and it's an act of conservation. Yes. It was not a morally based decision. It's, it's something that if you care about a, a river to the extent that you want to protect it, it's just what you have to do. It's, it's a, you know, it's not an absolute, it's not a given, it's not unwavering and it's not a moral decision by any means. I have the pleasure of saying that part of what I do for a living is reconnect people with their childhood or reconnect people with family members that they've lost because for people to have spent time with their beloveds that have passed uh, on the river and then to leave the river for whatever it is, a half a lifetime, when they go back to the river, um, they're immediately connecting with memory. And if part of that memory is catching and keeping and eating a trout, that means that ceremony was held as, you know, you, thank you for sharing that quote earlier. It is yeah. Every act of angling is an act of ceremony and, um, you know, we should never begrudge anyone from reengaging in a ceremony that connects us to our, uh, you know, to our past, to our formative years. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't so much shocked by personally, not so much shocked that a, a, a known angling author was talking about catching and keeping fish to the extent that he was um, so much that. I think the only disappointment, because I think it's actually very forthcoming of him, because this book was obviously an accounting of things that he had done over many, 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 many years. But there, it's there. I, I never found a, a moment of remorse in the book about the failure uh, to ever do it. Just that um, I think it's a given if you read the whole book that obviously no matter what he did, it was Mother Nature who was in control. And maybe I, you know, even as I say that, I, I feel maybe that I am immediately making it a moral, you know, everything that he did, I'm turning it on, um, you know, it's a something that's about morality because he's not showing remorse. But, um, you know, he was certainly well-intentioned and he was certainly doing something that never hurt anyone. Yet the ultimate question, I think, is, you know, what the book poses to us today when we are still engaging in acts of trying to control mother nature and expecting a different response. You know, no matter how hard we try, we know that it rarely, you know, will change anything. So it's just, um, I think the book is amazing in that respect. I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder though, if people who read it would find inspiration to say, try harder or say, oh, well, we, we can see from Leonard's book that, you know, uh, he stopped here. What if we went further? Would that work? You know, yeah. What if we took one of yeah. these ideas and put it on steroids, which would sort of be the, the biggest failure, right? To not learn from our mistakes. 
I'd almost hope that the book would serve as somebody who might have the same experience because if you read it with the naive eye of someone who's just purchased streamside property and has an interest in fishing, I think your inclination, if you had the financial means that obviously Wright did to engage in all of these experiments, that you might do the exact same thing. So the question then becomes, do we learn by, by what we've experienced in the past or do we, you know, like I just said, you know, continue to repeat Right. Same mistakes over and over. Now, I fished one time many years ago in New Mexico uh, on private waters. We had a guide who had a relationship with the owner of a property. And the owner was, if I remember correctly, a producer for Oprah Winfrey. So a gentleman of means, I'm assuming. And, and by the house we were fishing adjacent to, he was a gentleman of means. And he had manicured or curated the river. I don't know what he did, aside from what I was told, putting boulders in certain places with giving fish the opportunity to be out of the current and to hide. And it was magnificent. And it was productive. And the fish were very large. And I, I, I thought it was unusual because we had done a lot of fishing up in the mountains in New Mexico. We caught small fish and, and we had wonderful time. This was a different experience. This was clearly not fishing in the wild. It, it didn't feel natural. Again, it was a wonderful day, but it didn't feel natural. And certainly we can't curate all the rivers. We can't manicure all the rivers. And there, there's something to be said, a lot to be said about fishing wild and, and dealing with, just as we were talking, we were before we were talking, uh, we were looking at uh, the tributary that runs through Dave's property. And you know, there are trees down and you learn to fish around them. And, it's part, and, and when the trees are down, that does something to the fishery. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, but you learn to adapt. This is not a game of production. I've got a, a diary I've kept for many years, and I used to record the number of fish I caught. Usually there was a zero uh, for particular days, for a lot of days. But um, I remember a note I wrote to my son Ben uh, in the diary where he recorded the number of fish he caught and the number of fish I caught. And he had caught more. And I said, this, as you know, Ben, is not a competition. You know, we're out here for the beauty of the river. And he knows that. And in a manicured, curated river, you just don't get that. It's not quite, you might as well be fishing in Disneyland, but it's not fishing in nature. I'm, uh, I'm almost disappointed that his efforts to manicure the river physically weren't more successful. I've fished on manicured stretches, private that are, are almost indistinguishably manicured. So they've just created an environment for trout to hold in that is as wild as possible. And I've been in manicured places that are blatantly unnatural, yet wonderful places for trout to hold. Mm -hmm. And so they do. And one is certainly more enjoyable than the other because when it's too obvious exactly where the trout are going to be, it's less challenging. I think that uh, Self-challenge is part of the natural evolution of most fly fishermen. I think it's one of the things that actually distinguishes most of the participants of fly fishing. For those who have a lifelong committed passion to it, that that is part of it, that we continually self-handicap. Uh, so when things get too easy, it's not, it's not that fun. I, I got the pleasure of guiding it at a place that was heavily manicured and and just to be sure, too, if anyone doesn't know, this means that at some point the river was kind of momentarily diverted so that major 
stream work could be done, uh, rocks stacked in ways that aren't going to wash out in storms. Uh, and that's ultimately probably why Wright failed is because he was doing everything with water flowing through. But right. at some point, you know, the river diverted uh, in order to do work and create holding spots for fish. Anyway, uh, I was asked to guide at a place and I had never set foot on the property and I was concerned about knowing the river and um, it was here in the Catskills and, and the, those who were running the, the show said, oh, Todd, you'll know where the fish are. <laughs> and, you know, sure enough, I'll never forget within the first, I think, five minutes of being there and the client, I said, well, you see that rock over there? Yes. Okay, well, let's, let's send a fly over there and two casts later, you know, we're tight to a 20 inch rainbow. And, and that was pretty much how the day was. Oh, well, yeah, just try it that spot right there and well, wait but- out here. And so it's, you know, it's a wonderful experience when you're, when you're learning or you don't have a lot of time to devote. And when you do have time to devote to it, you want your days to be productive. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that's another part that is just, I can only be speculative about, um, you know, what we're reading about with Wright's experiences why is he doing this? Is somebody who is a sports writer, somebody who travels extensively to write, somebody who fishes a lot. Uh, and it, I find it fascinating that someone so busy and so continually engaged in the act is so overwhelmingly both concerned and also disappointed at how things are going with the few trout that are in the river behind his house. Um, but it, again, it, I think it all becomes a fascinating read. Yeah, it was a fascinating read, um, and he he got absorbed in the process. I don't know where when he found time to fish. <laughs> right? It really is to think that he did all of this on weekends and probably not every single weekend, right. and only the maybe five or six months a year that um, that you can really be even be in the water, right? Fishing, absolutely it's, amazing, it's fascinating. So, well, you you mentioned earlier uh, something uh, that I read about as well. Um, uh, one of his earlier books, he advocated a change in the way uh, you cast and uh, anticipate a fish. Mm. We, I think we, I'll say we all learned how to, or to try to get a, um, a dead drift on a fly. And he advocated a different method. Do you yes. want to talk about that? Sure. Um, it's, and, it, and, and without getting too granular about sort of history of that river and the flies of that river, but it's important, you know, some, some context to the point that you're, you're bringing up is that there was a relatively strict set of rules that, um, to how you, one was supposed to angle for trout with a fly, um, that came out of, uh, sort of a very stoic upper crust English, uh, school of fly fishing and was being disseminated very much through um, the Anglers Club of New York once the sport gained favor here in the States. So, and part of that was, as you just described, we cast upstream only and only to rising fish, uh, which means that for a time, anglers would not cast into water that didn't appear, where trout didn't appear to be feeding. And for whatever reason, these notions of the proper, you know, air quotes way of, of angling, uh, they clung for quite a while. Um, add to that the fact that this particular river, the Never Sink, was the river of uh, Theodore Gordon, who was widely heralded as the godfather of American dry fly fishing. 
And he was so associated with this river that for someone who was also romanticizing the Never Sink to then suggest that it's not necessary to fish in that way really did, uh, you know, all puns intended, raise the hackles of, of, <laughs> of those in the fly fishing community. And so, uh, you know, we are as anglers trying to imitate living insects, um, which have, are hatching underneath the water, making their way to the surface and trying to escape up off the surface as quickly as possible. And so he advocated for uh, fishing downstream uh, and for twitching to fl- a fly to, again, imitate uh, this struggling insect trying to make its way out of the surface film and, and fly away. There is a particular fly that was invented called the Never Sink Skater that was fished exactly in this way. Although uh, if you don't go deep enough, uh, you might not. And many people know the fly. It's basically just a very oversized hackle tied around a hook. So it floats really well, like a big, almost like a checkerboard, checker sized uh, mm-hmm. fly. Um, but it was actually invented, I believe, to imitate spiders along the Never Sink that would often dance across the surface. And it too worked well for trout. Um, but this was sort of the first time that Wright got himself in trouble with what he was writing, at least in fly fishing circles. Um, but he was already enjoying sort of the notoriety of being a sports writer, uh, both uh, for sort of monthly publications. He also wrote the, oh, I'm forgetting, some large outdoor brand uh, had him write a book about fly fishing. So, you know, he was squarely positioning himself as, you know, A, somebody who was continually engaged in the sport, B, an expert in the basics of it, and and positioning himself as an instructor. Um, So I think also that's why when someone in a position of authority says something that is for its time outlandish, obviously, you know, you stick your neck out and you're going to have it, it's going to be chopped off. I've certainly experienced it myself as an instructor. Um, But then there's also stories about people coming around and being, uh, more open because of course his technique worked ultimately <laughs> and people found that it was productive. And, um, and to this day, it's sort of like a last resort. Well, when you're fly fishing and your cast is perfect and the trout aren't coming up, well, just try twitching it and you got to make them come up. Sometimes you just have to make them rise. So I had, uh, a fly fishing instructor many years ago, actually when I first came to the Catskills and I was fishing the beaver kill, uh, by the name of Walt Manch, and uh, we became good friends and f- we fished a lot on the beaver kill. And then when he moved out west, we fished um, in West, west Yellowstone uh, on a number of the rivers out there. But he, it was as if he, and I use this phrase for fishing here, it's as if he lived on the side of a mountain and would only ski when there was powder. He would only go out when he knew the fish were rising. Now, that's different than what you described, but... Uh, if you have the luxury of living on the side, living next to the creek, uh, you go out, fish are rising, happy to do it. If not, not. Now, there are a lot of people, my son, son-in-law Ron in particular, who loves fishing underwater, loves dry flies, but loves fishing underwater and is very success- successful at it. You know, Walt also, sometimes I would accuse him of having uh, guide eyes, not accuse him. I'd, I'd uh, be envious of his guide eyes because he would know where the fish were uh, from fishing not manicured rivers, but fishing the river every day of the year, every day of the year. And he just knew where the fish were. And there was one particular uh, day he and I fished on the Willow Wemack. And I won't say the number of fish I caught, but it was a large, large number of fish. And all, and I had a crowd around me. And all I would do was put the fly where he told me, six inches past that rock. And I'd say, I don't see anything. And he'd say, six inches past that rock. Put the fly there, bang, 
So curated river or manicured river or not, if you know the river, you know where the fish are. It's a, it's a particularly special feeling as a guide when you get to do that. And uh, most especially when you're fishing with somebody who has the skills to follow the direction that you're giving. It's, it makes you, it always makes the you know, good angler always makes the guide look, <laughs> look very, good. very good. That's great. <laughs> very, very good. So this has been terrific. What other books are you reading, uh, fly fishing related or not? Well, you know, I, I, um, I mentioned that uh, a book, a different book on my bookshelf this morning caught my eye. And now, and now in lieu of the conversation, I'm going to go back and, and I've never, it's not a book that I've read. It's one, it's a fine artist book, uh, artist by the name of Alexis Rockman. He's from New York. I believe he lives in the Hudson Valley. Um, he was somebody who I really revered, uh, went to art school. I was a painter and, uh, my work at one point was heavily influenced by Rockman's work. And, um, so I picked it up and I actually, I'm going to, if it's okay, I want to read this one little, very short excerpt because I knew that this was sort of the right book to become an inspiration for today. His work is very much in the style of sort of the great masters of, of nature painting, you know, think Audubon style, but with a modern take. And also his, very, his work is very much about, um, well, I'll, just, I'll actually just read this. So um, having grown up in New York, I remember being fascinated by cockroaches and rats. I was curious about the sheer quantity of these organisms and how they survived. It was amazing that they were capable of flourishing in seemingly impossible situations. It is interesting that these species are empowered by environmental situations created by man in urban and suburban models. We are their landscape. These symbolically marginalized species are considered ruthless and out of control. But this perception is really symptomatic of our inability to control nature. Well. Wow. And so there's some things about this that, you know, just immediately strike me in this conversation that we've had, you know, um, the fact that these insects are considered ruthless is because they're, no matter what we do, it's a quantity game, right? It's never really, you never really like, oh, you never, no one talks about an inch, a cockroach being two inches or two and a quarter inches, no. right? The way that we talk about trout, but it's a quantity over quality thing. They're surviving in, in quantities. And hence, since we can't keep quantity down, we view these species as ruthless, yet they've found a way to survive uh, in an environment created by us. And you can just see all the ruminations about this idea and all the ways of implementing this idea that no matter what Mother Nature throws at Mother Nature. So, you know, right now, as we're broadcasting, we're um, in the midst of an awful drought, um, the likes of which this river from a temperature standpoint has never, ever seen. Yet we know that the trout will survive. No matter what we impose on animals around us, they will survive. They will adapt. They will find a way. Whatever Mother Nature throws at us, usually we find a way to survive. So, and here, uh, you know, an artist who's really trying to sort of bridge the gap between fine art and um in science and make comments about who's in control uh, is an artist that I've always admired. And so I would suggest uh, anyone listening to maybe uh, take a look at, you know, this incredible New York painter, Alexis Rockman, um, and uh, the essays in this book, one of which is uh, written by Stephen Jay Gould, a uh, really fascinating account of um, how sci the eyes of a scientist look at the work of, of an artist trying to bridge those two gaps. And um, so that would be my that's recommendation great. for the day. That's great. That's great. My wife will love that. She's not only fishes, but more so she's an artist. So that's wonderful. Thank you.
Thank you very much. That was great. Thank you. Stay tuned after the credits for a seven-minute or so discussion by Todd of the relationship of birds over the water to the presence of insects, the relationship between the blooming of flowers and insect hatches, turbidity on the esopus, and the impact of warm temperatures on our trout fishing, and particularly whether we will be fishing earlier or later in the season as a result of warming temperatures, all consistent with Todd's drive to learn from observation and experience rather than solely from what others have written and from Google. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Dave also provided the extraordinary venue for today's discussion. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden and Catherine provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Three and a half year old Jake, who's living with us this summer, continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's firecracker of a baby cousin, Francesca, now one and a half, and another great source of inspiration for us all. Thanks to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwindsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. fascinating book so aside from the things we focused on the discussion of all the flies the discussion of the vegetation i read somewhere else about watching the vegetation in the spring and knowing which uh, flies are hatching on the river it's fascinating yeah the um i think many of the many many of the first sort of mental bookmarks for fly hatches were very much uh, the t- from a timing perspective, um, you know, in relation to when certain things were blooming, yeah, it's when blooming, certain yeah. things Flowers. were happening, you know, the um, f- one of the and it, it's you know it's very much um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a fan of Burroughs, John mm-hmm. Burroughs. Yeah, um, I recently be, was asked to be on um, the board of the of uh, one of the Burroughs foundations up here, which has been s- just so amazingly cool to get some behind the scenes. Um, with that. And, you know, what I really love about Burroughs and just true naturalism in general is that I think, especially nowadays, right, in the face of the internet, that to learn through observation and experience and not by picking up a book or by Googling it, um, I think opens our eyes to a whole lot of interesting experiences. And so one of the, one of my favorite personal experiences with, with that as I learned the rhythms of the Catskills is that um, red-winged blackbirds, very active in the spring, 
They're usually foraging in fields and whatnot. When they finally start approaching the stream, that it coincides with when the fishing gets good, right? Now, obviously, we know that there's a strong relationship between hatching insects yeah, and sure. birds that eat them. Sure. Though I don't think that red-winged blackbirds are insect-eating birds. But it's just one of the things that I started to notice. And it's one of the things now that I use as my own benchmark because that behavior is going to be based uh, on ambient things such as temperature or rhythms of nature that they're following. Uh, but it, it always coincides. So, um, uh, and I, I know that I've read uh, even specifically Catskills things that are very old. Um, and from that perspective, you know, I mean, before hatch charts, right before Art Flick and Ernie Schweibert started developing mm-hmm. hatch charts here in the Catskills, uh, reading about the rhododendron bloom, um, which side note, apparently, uh, rhododendron, which I believe the Willow Weemick is really the only place where you can experience the rhododendron bloom along streamside. But rhododendrons used to populate almost every river of the Catskills naturally. Um, and they were all cut down over time. Um, but that the rhododendron bloom was like another indicator that a certain insect, you know, hatches when the rhododendrons bloom. So, so absolutely these, you know, the, 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 the floral were, were, uh, you know, informing the fishing. Yeah, absolutely. it's amazing. Yeah. Well, next year when you come to BioBlitz, this will be a fascinating discussion with the, both the bird scientists mm-hmm. and the fish scientists and the insect scientists who will be here. Yeah. It's amazing that they'll all be here. Yeah. One of the things that I've begun to ponder because I experienced it with Irene is that when you have sustained turbidity the way that we have this year, one of the first things to leave are the bald eagles. Because I can't see to fish, right? You know, the heron will still go and work in the shallows and catch the little small, the smaller fish, you know. Um, but uh, one of the reasons that we have osprey on these surface, on these surface, which they weren't here, but when I first got here, was in the absence of the eagles during Irene. So the osprey moved in first. Um, the other thing I saw right after Irene was I actually saw peregrine falcons uh, for about a year or two. Um, they went away. But um, in the absence of the eagles, the falcons moved in for a short time. So, you know, we've been having sustained, extremely dark turbid releases on the Esopus at this point for months. And I haven't really seen anything like this since Irene. So one of my biggest concerns is, you know, not, a, not that I have concern for the eagles, but it's just like, no, okay, just let's see elsewhere. what happens. Because I know yeah. what happens when they can't see. When they can't see, they can't eat. They have to go somewhere else. Um, so, uh, so we'll see who's going to move in next year because I'm not seeing as many eagles. So what are you, what are you thinking about um, the, the fall and the winter? Well, from a guiding perspective, I'm just hoping, you know, I need cold water quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because and you need also, water. You need volume. We have good volume. We have, because we're, we're still getting water released. Yeah. Right. So that at least that channel, you know, the river below the portal, we've got good flows. It's just that water is hot and what's coming in is hot. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have, there's coolness like we tested before, but, you know, even by the time this water hits the bottom before yeah. it hits the esopus, it's far warmer. But, and I need it to be sustained because it's also, you know, one of the things that always bothers me is like, oh, the water, it was cold last night and the water dipped down. And so I went fishing this morning and like, no, these you know, fish have been under thermal duress for two months now. They're not just going to be like, 
Yeah. Oh, great. It's 65. <laughs> you know, right. and, just, and just go back to normal. Like they need like, a week or two of sustained cool temperatures before their bodies, you know, reacclimatize to, is that a word? To cool water. And with global warming, it's not going to go away. So with global warming, are we going to be fishing in the, in the, we're able now to fish in the winter. Mm-hmm. You think there'll be more fishing in the winter? You're not going to have as many people coming up, certainly. No, I think that, I think that that, my gut feeling, and again, nobody knows. So this is just, of course. you know, this is my this is my intuition about it. Is that um, the impacts of global warming don't mean a longer season; they mean an earlier season because the insects, you know, the trout's behavior are completely dictated by insect behavior, mm-hmm. and the insects are, you know, the hatch charts. You know, going back to flip of those hatch charts are still absolutely viable, but they've started to shift forward in the season, and so the insects aren't just going to keep ha- like they're going to, you know. They exhaust themselves yeah. and then they're gone until next year. So even if we, if, you know, you could say like, oh, in October or November, the water is warmer than it used to be and we can still fish. Well, yeah, as long as the fish are sort of present. But in reality, that behavior is dictated by the insects. And if the insects are all gone and done for the season, then they're done for the season. So what I suspect really will start to happen is that we'll have better fishing in the earlier part of the season. So again, those hatch charts can shift and shift and shift as early as possible. And I don't really know. I can't speak to whether or not insects will adapt, you know, um, or even get to the point where, you know, you hear of certain flowers will bloom twice a year when it's very warm. Because similar thing, flowers bloom at a point of thermal accumulation, not at a specific temperature. Mm-hmm. And that's also old versus new thinking with insects, right? Used to be like, oh, insects hatch at 40 degrees. Well, not exactly 40 and if you don't reach that point of thermal accumulation, it could be 40 and then it could go back to 30 temp, water temp and it's going to take longer, you know, for those fish to, for the insects rather to regain the thermal energy that they need to hatch. So um, my gut instinct is, is just that, that we'll have better fishing earlier, but not later. Thank you, Todd. See you on the river. <laughs>